everyone, and welcome to another edition of Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Trish. I'm Wendy. And we're back with you with another all new episode. So I hope you caught our episode last time on Robert Freeman Sr., this unsolved cold case out of Easton, Pennsylvania. Hopefully you guys are looking into the case. If you have any other information, let us know. We are reaching out to Rita Jones, his sister, trying to see if she has any other information or thoughts she can share with us as well. Yes. So if you haven't checked it out, you can always go to our website at criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. On there, you will find all the information on this case and all of our other cases, all of the show notes and Wendy put together, oh my gosh, like a suspect list, evidence list, the write-up, and then also the resources she used and a map of all the places you talk about. I go hard. I don't go at all, guys. There you go. She's much more thorough than me, and I love the details. (laughs) So check it out. And if you'd like to reach out to us with your thoughts, you, of course, can do it through the contact page on our website or reach out to us on our Instagram page at criminaldispod, D-I-S-P-O-D, our YouTube channel, Criminal Discourse Podcast, our Facebook page, Criminal Discourse Podcast, and, and Twitter. At Criminal Pod. At Criminal Pod, yes. So we are trying to up the social media game. And we do have, what did what did you just share with me the other d- week? We are excited about, we're recording right before it airs, a new special on Hulu about the Camp Scott Girl Scout murders. The special is called Keeper of the Ashes. It stars Kristen Chenoweth. We love her. We didn't realize she was associated with this case. Because she was to be there. She was to go to that Girl Scout camp, but she got sick. She was. And we heard some rumors that they have some DNA evidence, some new information, and a singular suspect, according to the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. So if you haven't watched that yet, check it out. As soon as we are done recording this and it becomes Tuesday, the date of airing, we are going to be binge watching that ourselves. So enjoy. And you can check out our season two episode on that case if you want a little more information before you watch the Hulu special. It's exciting. I mean, for the families, at least, it's nice to give them a sense, hopefully, of closure with the one suspect that updated DNA testing has been able to not rule out, I believe, is what we saw when we were doing a little more research on that. All right, everybody. Well, we're going to jump right into this. And this case is out of Australia. So our listeners from the land down under, this one is for you. So our episode takes place in Perth, Australia, which is located on the western coast of Australia. It is the fourth largest city in Australia with a population of 2.1 million as of 2022. Now, Perth, Australia was founded in 1829 by Captain James Sterling Perth. The second most common language spoken in Perth is Mandarin Chinese. I found that interesting, 2.3%, and Italian, 1.4%. So celebrities from Perth include actor Heath Ledger, Formula One race car driver Daniel Ricciardo, and actresses Judy Davis, Melissa George, and Catherine Langford. She was in 13 Reasons Why. I thought I knew another Perth actor, but it turns out he just lived hours from Perth. They were using Perth as the reference point. (laughs) There you go. So just before we get into the minutia of this case, I want to give a bit of a disclaimer. For viewer discretion, this 
and this is due to the topic of sexual violence. I don't get too graphic into the details, but we do talk about sexual abuse. We do talk about sexual violence. So I just wanted to make that disclaimer to you. So on November 10th, 1986, customers in a local shopping center in Willoughby, located near Morehouse Street, were shocked to see a half-naked teenager running into the shopping center yelling for the police. She was visibly upset. And now I've read two different takes on what happened. One was a Good Samaritan either took her to a local police station in Palmyra or this Good Samaritan had contacted the police, but she did get to the police. And this is what she told them. This is 17-year-old Kate Moyer. Now, I hope I'm saying her name correctly. It's spelled M-O-I-R. So if I mispronounced it, I apologize. And what she tells these detectives is that she had been abducted at knife point by a couple while hitchhiking along Sterling Highway. And this was after a night out with friends. She says that she had been drinking, but when the car pulled over of this unassuming couple, they were initially asked for directions and then offered her a ride. She gets in the car, she gets a knife put to her throat, and she tries to get out of the car, but finds that there's no interior door handles. Oh my gosh. So she's trapped. I'd be terrified. Yes. Instant terror. So Kate goes on to give more information that once they had arrived at the couple's home, the couple made her shower, then smoke some marijuana with them and watch a movie. And she was also made to dance for them to the Dire Straits song, Romeo and Juliet. And at one point, Kate gets, this is not going to end well. And she asks them straight up, am I going to be raped or killed? And the man's reply was, well, if you're good, you'll only be raped. So after midnight, she was taken to a room and chained to the bed by her hands and feet and raped by the man as the woman watched them and looked to be taking notes as the assault occurred. Mm. So afterward, she was given a pen and paper and told to write goodbye letters and then made to shower again. And at that point, she was moved into the master bedroom where her leg was chained to the man's leg as he slept. She was also given some pills to take, but Kay was smart enough to realize that if I swallow these things, she would never wake up again. So she tongued them. So Kate goes on to tell the police that the man got up in the morning and left for work and she was unchained by the woman and directed to make a phone call to her parents telling them that she had stayed the night over at a friend's house because she had been drinking and she was fine. So while making the call, Kate noted the number she was calling from. And I don't know if the number was on the phone itself. This was 80s. So it wasn't like digital. So I'm thinking that the number was maybe there. And after her call was completed, she was led back to the bedroom where the woman was going to chain her up again. But someone had knocked on the door. So the woman didn't have a chance to chain her up. So Kate took that opportunity in those brief moments to do a few things, which were, in my opinion, genius. She took her lipstick that she had on her and she wrote down a number on a piece of paper, her phone number, to prove that she was there and put it somewhere in the room. And then she broke the window lock and jumped out the window. And this is a one-story home, so it wasn't a far jump for her. She then ran for help, and she went to three houses that were near this home because this was in a development. This wasn't out in the middle of the boonies. But no one was home. So that's why she ran into the shopping center. So she told the police the address she was at. She told him the phone number of the home she was at, where she had been held and assaulted. And she gave a detailed description of the couple. And you can see in some of the articles I linked the sketches that were made on her information. And they are spot on. You're my hero, Kate. So the detectives were not only interested in in pursuing this case, but it seemed to tie into a case they were working on. They were working on missing person case of four women within the last five weeks. So they thought, okay, could 
this couple have something to do with these four other missing women. So Kate agreed to go with detectives to 3 Morehouse Street. And this is a small three-bedroom white brick home located in Willoughby in a working-class suburb of Fremantle. So the detectives knocked on the door, but no one answered. So they decided to do a little bit of a stakeout and waited outside to see when one of the homeowners would return. Now, when the woman arrived home, Kate identified her as, yep, mm-hmm, that's her. And detectives went up to the woman. And I think Kate might have been with them because she said she recognized the girl, but didn't want to talk anymore without her husband. So this was 35-year-old Catherine Burney, and she was placed under arrest immediately. Now, David Burney, who was also 35, was arrested at his job where he sold car parts at a wrecking yard in Myrie. So at the police station, David and Catherine were interviewed separately, with each not really sharing much information. Both claim, though, that Kate had voluntarily gone with them and agreed to smoke marijuana and agreed to have sex with David. This is kind of their basic story. Now, as morning turned into late afternoon and David's interview kept stretching on, one of the detectives, whether it was instinct in thinking he's connected to these other missing women cases, he asked him, he said, hey, it's getting dark. Why don't you just show us where the bodies are so we can dig them up? And David's response was, quote, OK, there are four of them. So once Catherine was told about David's confession, she also folded and told detectives what they had done. So a little information on who David and Catherine Burney are. So David was born David John Burney. He's the eldest of five children born in February 1951 in the Perth suburb of Wattle Grove. The family moved in the early 60s to a new neighborhood, and that is where he met 12-year-old Catherine Harrison. David's upbringing was wrought with dysfunction. And that is probably a very light way of putting how this upbringing occurred. His mother really wasn't cut out to be a mother at all and probably should have not had any children, but she did. And it's said that she often drank away her days, allowing her children to just run wild. Now, not much is written about David's father, only that he had some sort of handicap and was disabled. Something, um, I don't know if it's curvature of the spine, Mm -hmm. but He worked a lot. I don't think I couldn't see anything him tied to any substance abuse issues, but he was gone a lot because he's trying to provide for this family. And he would pass away in 1986 after all of this information of their crimes had come to light. Now, rumors would surround the family relating to incest. In various articles I read, it just would say that rumors would surround the family. And I don't know if that's because one of David's brothers would tell reporters later on that David was in constant need of having sex. And one time he even asked his brother for sex. And his brother's like, no. And he woke up with David trying to have sex with him. So I don't know if it came from that or there were other incidences, but I couldn't find any specific references. Not a normal household. No, very dysfunctional. And again, a lot of neglect. Kids ran wild, no structure, no rules, no discipline, unkept home. Neighbors would say just very dirty. Visibly dirty. Visibly dirty. Yes. So David and his siblings were eventually removed from their home due to neglect, and they were all sent to different foster homes. Now, at 15, David left school and entered an apprenticeship program to become a horse jockey at Ascot Racecourse. And David Burney was a very slight man. I don't think he was very tall, but he was very slim build. So for a jockey, good fit. And it is said during his year of training, he was often physically harmful towards the horses. And he also seemed to be a bit of an exhibitionist, exposing himself to others. And it is said that one night, 
he had broken into an elderly woman's home and he was naked except for a stocking over his head and face and he had raped her. And this would be his first documented rape, but not his last. So needless to say, I didn't see anything where he was charged and sent away for this crime, but he was fired. (laughs) At the very least. At the very least, yeah. So David had a long history of criminal activity starting in his adolescence. He would spend the majority of his youth in and out of jail and after being convicted of various misdemeanors and felonies. So from that, I assumed, yes, he was prosecuted in some way for this rape of this elderly woman. He was also addicted to pornography and is described as a paraphilic. Someone who is a paraphilic, it is a condition that is characterized by abnormal sexual desires that typically involve extreme or dangerous activities. Now, David did go on to marry in his 20s. He married a woman by the name of Carrie, and they would go on to have one daughter together. Now, there is a documentary you can find on YouTube. I just came across it after I got done researching this case. It's Australian Families of Crime, Killer Couple, David and Catherine Burney. And I believe it came out on October 3rd, 2018. If you want to watch it, I started to, but I didn't finish it. And this is the only reference I could find. And they do interview his wife, mm-hmm. his first wife. And every article I read never mentioned her name. So in this crime documentary, it does. So the other half of this couple is Catherine Margaret Harrison, also born in 1951 in the suburb of Subiaco. Again, if we're not pronouncing that correctly, we apologize, Australia. Her mother had died in childbirth when Catherine was around two years old. And after her passing, she was sent to live with her father in South Africa. And it said her father really wasn't cut out to be a parent. And after two years, she was sent back to Australia to live with her mother's parents. It is said her father was abusive, but it is not known if that abuse was physical or sexual. There's nothing I read that said specifically what it was. Catherine is described as a sad child with no friends, and that loneliness seemed to cause her to long for any type of relationship, whether good or bad. So Catherine and David met young when the two would be neighbors for that time around the age of 12. Catherine was living with her aunt and uncle at that time as her grandparents had passed away, and they happened to live next to the Bernies in Lathlin. Soon, the pair became inseparable, and David really filled that void of loneliness for her. Together, the pair would get into a lot of trouble, and in July 1969, when both were 18 years old, they were brought to trial for 11 counts of breaking and entering and theft of goods totaling close to $3,000. It's said they tried to steal a safe from a local drive-in theater. So Catherine was pregnant at the time, but not with David's child, someone else. So Catherine got probation, and David got sent to prison for nine months. Now, the following month, more charges were brought against the pair, eight more, in fact, again for breaking and entering and theft. David would get three more years added to his sentence. Catherine was placed on probation for four years. So in June 1970, just about a year later, David had enough of prison and decided to escape and reunite with Catherine. And the pair were apprehended about a month later, this time charged with 53 counts of breaking and entering, theft, unlawful driving of a motor vehicle, and other various offenses. Now, when they were apprehended, police discovered that they had about 100 sticks of dynamite with 120 detonators and three fuses. And that's all it says on this. I don't know if that's what they used to break and enter into places or to try to you know, get the safes out of the wall? I don't know. They don't go on to explain it, just that they were found with all these pyrotechnics. There's trauma bonding, and then there's this. There is, (laughs) yes. 
So Catherine told authorities at the time that she knew what she had done was wrong, but she loved David and there was nothing she would not do for him. And this is a statement that we'll hear again. This time, David got two and a half more years in prison on top of all of his other prison time and Catherine got six months. Now, while in prison, she did give birth and the baby was taken by welfare services until her release. Now, it was upon her release that Catherine took a job as a nanny for a family in Fremantle. And this really was on the advice of some prison officials that worked with her, I read, that once she was able to separate from David, kind of got a clearer head of things. And these individuals really did talk to her about starting fresh, starting new, you can make a life for yourself. And she seemed to be truly happy for the first time in her life. Now, while working for the family, she met Donald McLaughlin, and the pair fell in love and married on May 31st, 1972, on Catherine's 21st birthday. Shortly after the nuptials, she gave birth to the first of their five children. There's a lot of fertility going on here. (laughs) A lot of kids. A lot of kids. Now, Catherine and Donald had a son called Little Donnie, and he was named after his father, but his life would be cut short. Little Donnie would be hit and crushed to death by a car in the family driveway. This tragic accident was witnessed by Catherine, and it seems that seemed to be the starting point for Catherine and Donald's marriage to start deteriorating. Now, the family had been living in state-funded housing in the working suburb of Victoria Park. Donald was currently unemployed and on disability due to a back injury. So Catherine, along with Donald, their five children, possibly six, I don't know if her firstborn was living with them at that time, and she might have had up to seven children. There are some articles that reference seven children, some articles that reference six children. So besides all the kids... Catherine and Donald, they have Donald's father and his uncle living in this cramped, what they say is an unkept home where there was little care for the property or the children. Now, I read that one place, but then I also read other things that Catherine was a good mother to her children. So who knows? So after 13 years without David in her life, Catherine had had enough and left her family behind. Her youngest child was three at the time, and she moved in with David in 1985. No. So it is said, and it's unclear whether they had kept in touch the whole time they were separated, or they reconnected later on. But I had read one version where Catherine, after her last child, decided to get a hysterectomy. And I thought, wow, that's pretty extreme to get a hysterectomy. Why not just get your tubes tied? But They said hysterectomy in this article. And while she's in the hospital, her husband comes to visit her, Donald, and is surprised to find David Bernie sitting there holding her hand. Oh, my. Yes. Like, uh, okay, what is this? And she returned home to Donald, it is said. And one day Donald drove her to work like any other normal day that they usually did. But yet she never returned home. She went to go live with David Bernie, leaving her whole family just behind. So Catherine would end up legally changing her last name to Bernie, even though the couple never married, as she never got a divorce, and neither did he at that time. I think they call it a deed pool, which I had to look up. It's just a legal name change. That's it. Nothing to do with with marriage. We have a lot more to this story, but we are going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor with a special offer for our listeners. Here at Criminal Discourse, we are excited to share our new partnership with Manscaped. What is Manscaped, you ask? Manscaped is a male grooming company that delivers the right precision tools so that a man can safely manscape. They do this by custom engineering and specifically designing products that are both hygienic 
and safe to use on one's family jewels. So to share with you all some firsthand knowledge about these products, Manscaped sent us their performance package to have the men in our lives try them out to give you an honest review. So my husband, who you've all heard me refer to before as our tech support here at Criminal Discourse, was impressed with the Weed Whacker, which is the nose and ear trimmer. He said that he liked how it handled, especially since he didn't have to manipulate it around to make sure he got everything he was trying to trim up. He said it was quick, efficient, plus easy to clean, much better than the trimmer he currently has. So don't wait. Go to manscaped.com and when you put in our code CDP20 for Criminal Discourse Podcast 20, you will get an additional 20% off. Oh, and did I mention the free shipping? Wendy, how about your husband? Well, my husband really liked everything from the top down. It started with the packaging, and ladies, we might not realize it, but our men like gifts too. His review of the Lawnmower 4.0 was a revolution if you've ever tried grooming down there without something like it. He says, smooth sailing, guys, no fear. The best part was the built-in light that makes it easy to see what you're doing. Plus, he's sure to be purchasing more of the Crop Preserver, the anti-chafing ball deodorant, in case you're wondering what that is. If you have difficulty figuring out a gift for that special man in your life, look no further than Manscaped, the perfect gift that will upgrade their scaping experience and have their mountain oysters feeling revitalized in no time. Don't wait. Check them out. And don't forget to use our code CDP20 to get an additional 20% off plus free shipping. This ad was sponsored by Manscaped. Now back to our episode. So all was not smooth sailing, as David's ferocious appetite for sex was insatiable. The couple experimented sexually daily, delving into the kinkier side of things. When that wasn't enough, the couple discussed abducting a random female to rape. David had convinced Catherine that, that she would experience the heights of sexual pleasure watching him, quote, penetrate another woman who was bound and gagged, unquote. And Catherine, ever ready to please David, agreed. So at one point, David's younger brother, James Burney, stayed with the couple after he got out of jail for indecent assault on his six-year-old niece. Sexual depravity seems to run in this family. James, having nowhere to go since he assaulted his mother, and I don't know if that assault was just physical or sexual, had a restraining order against him, so he moved in with David and Catherine. And James would tell reporters years later that David had a massive pornography collection and wanted sex up to six times a day. And if he didn't get it, he would go mad. He also claimed that David would inject an anesthetic into his penis to maintain his erections longer. That just sounds painful. I think your word ferocious was the best one so far. Yeah. The best adjective for this behavior. Yeah, I didn't I didn't understand it because I, but then I was thinking okay, they might not have had Vi- Viagra or Cialis back then. So, it is said he injected cocaine too. Oh lord. Right. And that is tied back to in an article I read where Kate said Catherine had to go answer the door so she didn't get a chance to rechain her is that she was going to the door to the drug dealer was coming by the house to deliver She was saved by a dealer. She possibly was saved by a drug dealer, yes. On October 6, 1986, the couple's kinky talk and fantasies turned into reality. This was after the couple had researched how to get away with murder. This is not something they did fly by the night. They researched where to possibly pick up victims, where to dispose of evidence, where to dispose of bodies way before they started abducting women. 
David had tried in September just the month previously to lure unexpecting victims to their home by placing an advertisement in the local paper. It read, quote, urgent, looking for a lonely person, prefer females 18 to 24, share a single room flat, unquote. Now, the ad didn't pan out, but their first victim would end up coming to their home. So 22-year-old psychology student Mary Nelson had met David earlier that day at his place of work. She was looking for some tires. And David talked her up and told her he had some that he would sell her at a cheaper price, but they were at his house. So Mary, a college student looking to save some money, took him up on his offer. So when Mary entered the Bernie residence, she was grabbed from behind and a knife was put to her throat. She was dragged to the bedroom, chained by her hands and feet, and a gag was placed in her mouth. Now, Catherine watched the entire time David repeatedly raped Mary. It has been reported that Catherine would also stimulate David's body parts while he was raping their victims. So although the couple had not discussed murdering their victims per se, they knew to avoid being caught, their victim could not live to tell about it. So later that evening, David and Catherine drove Mary to the Glen Eagles National Park. Once there, David again raped Mary and then strangled her with a nylon rope. Once deceased, David stabbed her to speed up decomposition as this would allow the body's gases to be released quicker, or at least he believed it would. Mary Nelson was buried in a shallow grave. So the thrill of raping and killing a terrified woman only appeared to satiate the pair for about two weeks. This time, instead of prey coming to them, they went out hunting. It is said that when Catherine spotted a potential victim, she would say, I've got the munchies. David agreeing with the prey would reply, I've got the munchies too. I'm not really sure why they were using code phrases since they were the only two in the car. Yeah, and they're like past the age for like drug references like this being cool and funny and cute. I guess it just added to the fantasy. So 15-year-old Susanna Candy had been hitchhiking when she was picked up by the Bernies. And can you imagine how unassuming this couple looked pulling over to offer her a ride? Having a female in the car may have lowered Susanna's concern for personal safety. So once Susanna got into the car, she was bound and gagged and taped at knife point. Susanna was forced to write letters to her parents, assuring them that she was okay and just needed some time alone. She's 15. (laughs) And they're learning now too, right? Trying to buy time, cover up longer. So Susanna was chained to the bed and raped by David. This time, Catherine joined them on the bed and knowing that it would turn David on even more. This was something they had talked about in their fantasy phase. So afterwards, David tried to strangle Susanna, but she fought back. So the couple drugged her with sleeping pills. It said they forced them down her throat. So once she fell asleep, David tried again, putting a rope around her neck. But this time, he wanted Catherine to do it to show him how much she loved him. So Catherine did. And she ended up strangling Susanna to death. Again, the couple drove to Glen Eagles Forest and buried her in a shallow grave next to Mary. So on November 1st, 1986, Nolene Patterson, 31 years old, would run out of gas, or in Australia they call it petrol, and was happy to accept a ride from the Bernies. And in fact, I read one article where she actually knew them because they had done some painting in her house for her. So that happiness didn't last long once a knife was placed to her throat. Now what happened twice before occurred again, with Nolene being chained, gagged, and repeatedly raped. This victim, however, caused Catherine some concern, as she felt that David fancied her. This was reinforced by David putting off killing her. Nolene would be kept prisoner for three days. 
On the fourth day, Catherine made David force sleeping pills down Nolene's throat. Then Catherine held a knife to her own throat and told David, you need to decide between us. David chose Catherine and strangled Nolene to death. Nolene was buried beside both Susanna and Mary. I had seen uh, from some sources as well that Nolene was trying to ensure her survival by playing off of this dynamic and acting like she wanted to be with David. Smart. Mm -hmm. Yes. And in the end, it backfired. It didn't work. Four days later, on November 5th, Denise Brown, who was 21 at the time, was hitchhiking along Sterling Highway. Her original plan was to get to a nearby bus stop. But when the Bernies offered her a ride, she readily accepted. Like the three previous victims before her, Denise soon had a knife to her throat and was taken to the depraved couple's home, only to be chained and gagged before being raped. Now, unlike Nolene, who was kept alive for a few days, Denise, after repeated rapes, was driven to a new location near Penjar at the Ganagara Pine Plantation. And this is north of Perth. So why they chose a new location I don't know. Maybe they felt that when they did what they could, they needed to move somewhere else to keep suspicion off them. Mm -hmm. So upon arrival, David once again raped Denise, but this time he had plunged a knife into her throat while committing his heinous assault. However, Denise didn't die. So Catherine, who had brought a bigger knife, gave it to David, who plunged it into her chest. Now, thinking that she was dead, the couple started digging out a shallow grave and moved her body into it for burial. And Denise surprised the couple once again by attempting to sit up. David then grabbed an axe and swung it at Denise's skull. Now, his first strike didn't seem to end Denise's suffering as she once again attempted to sit up. But on the next swing, he did finally end her life. Once deceased, the couple quickly covered her grave. So after the couple returned home, Catherine was not satisfied with the after-killing sex that usually occurred after burying their victims. Denise's death was different, and Catherine was not too keen on going through that again. She believed that the rapes and murders could not continue forever and would soon come to an end. Little did she know how those thoughts would come true just five days later. David once again seemed to be jonesing for another victim, and he convinced Catherine to go out hunting again. This time, Kate Moyer would be responsible for bringing the murderous couple's rampage to an end. On November 12th, Catherine and David were each charged with four counts of murder, two counts of aggravated sexual assault, and one count of deprivation of liberty. It was two months after Catherine's arrest that she reached out to her children by letter dated January 4th, 1987. This was the first contact they had from her in over two years. In it, Catherine sounded cheerful and explains to her children that the reason she had taken on David's last name was that they wouldn't be hurt by all the media. Right. She goes on to say she's hopeful that doctors would be able to find out why she did what she did. She claimed that she loved her children and asked them to keep out of trouble. And this is a quote, because of what I was supposed to have done. And I found that interesting when I read that letter in that she's saying, well, there's a reason I did this. Hopefully doctors can find that out. And it's because, you know, I was supposed to have done this. Um, You admitted it. You took them to the bodies. You planned it. And uh, if you're sorry to your kids, if you want to protect them, how about you don't rape and murder people? There's a start. And I think that also was a lie because how did when she left them, they had not rape murdered anyone. No. And I don't think that was the initial plan. So you changing your name, you either knew you were going to do that. You didn't want them to find you. 
So according to an article in the Sydney Morning Herald, Catherine's husband, Donald, stated that he would welcome his wife back no matter the crime because he said love is love. You can't help who you love. So even Donald's family seemed to be supportive of Catherine, even after the evidence of her crimes had been exposed. Those that knew Catherine before reuniting with David said she was a kind and caring person and a good mom. They were left shocked and bewildered by the murders and Catherine's role in them because what they knew of Catherine that wasn't Catherine. But was it? She's an excellent liar, excellent deceiver, manipulator. If she seems like two totally different people. And you're not the only one that's had that thought. So David Burney was sentenced in February 1987 in Perth Supreme Court to life imprisonment under strict security. David prepared a statement that was read in court where he claimed to be extremely sorry for his actions and that he had wished to spare the parents and relatives the agony of a trial. He did not try to present a defense of insanity and told the court that he knew what he was doing and understood what he was doing was wrong. One good thing he did. So the judge stated during sentencing that David was a danger to society and that you should never be released, ever. The judge also used his time to praise Kate for her, and this is a quote, her courage resulted in your arrest, and I have little doubt cut short the campaign of sexual gratification and murder which you and your de facto wife had embarked on during October and November. That young girl's cool head and initiative coupled with Providence undoubtedly enabled her to escape the fate of her predecessors, unquote. Catherine Burney was sentenced to four life terms of imprisonment in March 1987 in the Perth Supreme Court. Life in Australia means that one can be eligible for parole after 20 years. Now, the judge at her sentencing stated that he hoped that Catherine and David, who had received the same sentences, would never be released. The reason hers was done later is she was trying to be evaluated for an insanity defense, but she didn't get it. She wants to deceive and lie and get her way out of it. So at the age of 54, after 19 years behind bars, David Burney was found dead in his cell on October 7th, 2005. Ironically, he had used a cord to hang himself from the air conditioning vent in his cell. Now, prison officials noted that David was depressed due to his computer being confiscated after pornographic images were found on it, and he was also implicated in a sexual assault on another prisoner. There was also the issue of his antidepressant medication not arriving on time. I guess they got a new system, so there was a delay in getting the meds there. And he had been without his meds for three days when he committed suicide. I also saw in one of the articles that him and Catherine had been keeping up correspondence. Oh, they wrote like 2,000 letters initially between them. But the the antidepressant medication was after Catherine had slowed down her writing, stopped mm -hmm. responding to his letters. Mm -hmm. And that caught, again, with I don't know why I'm honing in on this narrative with Catherine. I'm more mad at her somehow. But this just shows to me also more of her control over people and their mental state that she maybe is the cold calculating one in this equation. Well, authorities did feel that she was the puppeteer of the couple. Like she definitely pulled the strings. Again, she's the one that goes out hunting with them to say, looking at all these women. And it they really didn't have an age group, per se, because right. their youngest was 15. The oldest was up, I believe, 31. 31. They just had to be female. That was it didn't matter if they're blonde, brunette. I don't think their body builds mattered. It just that they were female. But she was the one that really, except for the first victim, Mary, who came to their home, the others she picked out. 
And she cuts him off and he kills himself. That is correct. So since entering prison, Catherine is said to have maintained a quiet existence and is described as a cooperative inmate. I did read one thing, though. She was a go-between between a woman in her prison and another woman in another prison that were there on murder charges. So they couldn't correspond. That was part of their sentencing. They were not allowed to correspond, these two women. And she was the go-between between them. So... Catherine worked as a prison librarian in Bandy Up's Maximum Security Prison. So now, Detective Paul Ferguson, who worked on this case, feels that Catherine is an evil parasite. This is my guy. Yep. She is described by others as being highly manipulative and cunning. These are the same skills that she used to lure unsuspecting women into the couple's car. So Catherine has been up for parole numerous times. Each time she has been denied. Good. She's now 70 as of September 2021 and is Western Australia's longest serving prisoner. So I read another article that her oldest son, I'm not sure if that's with her marriage to Donald or not, him and Kate work in conjunction, work very hard to keep her in prison. They do not ever want her released. So David and Catherine have also been suspected of other abductions and killings, specifically of three other women, Cheryl Renwick, Barbara Wester, and Lisa Marie Mott. These, however, remained unsolved. I guess there is no, Catherine hasn't admitted it, David didn't admit it, and there's no hard, hard evidence linking them. So as of January 2021, Three Morehouse Street was up for sale again, and it sold to a young 20-something couple looking for a bargain, sold for around $425,000. This is not the first time Three Morehouse has come on the market. Apparently, before 2021, it had been sold three other times in the previous eight years. I believe one of the articles I referenced below shows the renovated version. It's cute. It's a cute little three-bedroom home. They've renovated it, but it's, it's tied to some horrific history. And that is the Morehouse Murders. Reminds me a lot of Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka in Canada, but frustrates me because I think Catherine, we got justice here with Catherine. She should be behind bars. But that little Carla, she made her deal with the Canadian courts. And then all that evidence came out and she's just living her life, having kids. Yeah, <sighs> that makes me angry. She did. I think they called that the deal with the devil back then, but she played it smart. And she did it and she got the deal. It's not fair. It doesn't seem like justice was achieved. And in this case, yes, Catherine is behind bars and from the sounds of it may not ever get parole. Thank goodness. We're both women, but I think the lesson here is women will also play on the stereotypes to help you lose your guard and get you into these situations. You cannot trust them just because they are in a car with the man or the women can also be killers. The women can also be luring you into your death just because it is a female does not mean that you are not. It's still a stranger. Yes. So criminal discourse life tip, don't hitchhike. What's nice about this? Well, this was 80s, 86. You know, now we have Uber, Lyft, you have much more options to get you from one place to another. All right, everyone. Well, let us know what you think of this case, the Morehouse murder case, also known as the killer couple case out of Perth, Australia. Again, you can find all of our information on our website at criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. I would also encourage you to check out the YouTube 
crime documentary. It was what I watched of it was really good, gave, gave a lot of information. So Father's Day is right around the corner, I believe, when this episode's going to air. So like we said earlier, with our partnership with Manscaped, check them out and use our code CDP. 20 criminal discourse podcast 20 and you get an additional 20% off plus free shipping get it don't miss out don't miss out amazing products my husband still raves about them mine too he just put on his little manscape boxers the other day he loves those just as much they are anti-chafing boxers i didn't realize that there was such a thing but there is so it makes a go. difference if you're a guy it makes a big difference i am not but i'll take your word for it <laughs> Okay, everyone. So if you'd like to reach out to us, like I said, you could do so through all those various means. And the only thing we would ask is that whatever platform you're listening to us on, if you could subscribe, that would be great. If you could give us a review, that would be even better. We'd greatly appreciate it. So as I always end the show, if you see something, say something, you might have that missing piece of the puzzle that takes to solve a crime or be like Kate and be whip smart. Don't take pills that they're trying to force on you. Be aware of your surroundings. Notice, I mean, she knew the phone number. She left her phone number there to leave evidence that she was there in case something happened to her. So smart. Like, I don't know if I could have been 17 years old and thought of that. That's the standout for me. Yeah. Not all heroes wear capes. And it was because of her and her smart thinking that she's alive today and was able to bring this couple to justice. And as always, we want you to be safe out there, but we also need to remember we need to be kind to one another. So until next time, guys, bye. bye.